Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this AE per Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today we're discussing a remarkable three-volume limited edition book about the Sistine Chapel that is redefining what is possible in the luxury art book world. The Sistine Chapel book is a result of a five-year collaboration between the Vatican and two publishers. It features one-to-one scale images of the chapel's masterpieces by Michelangelo, Botticelli and other Renaissance artists. The book was created after photographers took more than 270,000 images over 65 consecutive nights while the Sistine Chapel was closed to visitors. A photographic assignment of biblical proportions. A 33 foot tall scaffold which was constructed and taken apart each night helped the photographers get close to the famous art on the walls and the ceiling. The book uses state-of-the-art colour printing to ensure its colours match those used in the chapel. All in all, this book is a special achievement, and we're thrilled to have copies for sale on Abe Books. My guests are Nicholas Calloway and Manuela Roosevelt from Calloway Arts and Entertainment, one of the publishers behind the book. Nicholas is Callaway's CEO and founder, while Manuela is Associate Publisher and Editorial Director at Callaway. Welcome, Nicholas and Manuela. Richard, it's a real pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Richard, for having us this morning. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Um, so a real simple question to start with. Perhaps for you, Nicholas, can you describe this, this magnificent book for us, please? Richard, you've described it very well, but uh, so thank you. Uh, but this is uh, the, the the book itself has been done on a scale I think unlike any uh, art book of our time. Uh, it was a five-year project uh, authorized and produced in collaboration with the Vatican Museums and Scripta Maniant, uh, an Italian art book publisher, but. Since we're on audio, we'll try to describe it, but it is one of those books that needs to be seen uh, uh, in order to be fully appreciated, in part because of its overwhelming scale. It is three volumes, a total of 960 pages, and it is one-to-one actual life size. It's two feet high. So the astonishment of it and what's unprecedented is that it enables us to experience this great master work of human achievement and artistry by Michelangelo Buonarroti um, in the highest resolution and with the most uh, accurate uh, color fidelity uh, that has ever that has ever been seen in book form. Most books, of course, are are uh, meant to hold in the hand and are are only able to present artwork in a in a highly reduced scale. So our intent was to create uh, an immersive book of the entire Sistine Chapel. So you also have uh, text in the book, I believe. It's not just a yes. visual experience. 
Yes, it, there is an introductory text uh, by the former director of the Vatican Museums, the ex-cultural uh, minister of Italy, and our captions at the end of each chapter that identify what you are seeing. So um, how did the book come about? Who started the process for this? Who, who proposed a concept for the book? Manuel and I uh, work in close partnership and essentially we uh, have regular sessions in which we dream up what we would most like to see in published form. Uh, we have both been in, spent our careers in publishing. Calloway Arts and Entertainment is uh, in its 42nd year and Manuela has spent a lifetime um, producing extraordinary books. So between us, we, we have made thousands of books. Uh, but after all this time, we're fortunately in a position to work with uh, our, uh, our favorite artists and writers. And so we, we dream up what we would most like to do. And um, we're also fortunate in that we're a company that lives at the intersection of art and technology. And the technological possibilities and the, the evolution of the technology scale is so rapid that we are able to uh, accomplish things in book form, whether it's a print-based book or a, a digital book, um, that were not possible a generation ago, or even five years ago, and the Sistine Chapel is is an example of that. The technology that goes into the book from uh, a photographic standpoint, uh, which is uh, the highest resolution photography that exists called gigapixel photography, the post-production software that was utilized to stitch together the 270,000 individual elements into page formats the six color printing, uh, the color correction, all of these have become so advanced that we realized that there was an opportunity in print-based book form to give readers, viewers the world over an experience that does not, it does not um, duplicate the experience of, of seeing artworks in uh, in person, but it gives us some sense of the majesty and power of it. So in some sense, beautiful books have relied on advances in technology for a long time. You can go all the way back to woodcuts and then to lithographs and now to digital photography and now to advances in digital photography. So I suppose on one hand, books using technological advances isn't new. Absolutely. Uh, uh, book making has, as you rightly say, has always been tied to uh, advances in technology. And that continues apace today, perhaps more than ever. So, so we make use. We've always been at the leading edge of the technology curve and uh, try to apply those 
in a innovative way, but marry them with traditional bookmaking techniques. And I think that's another unique aspect of the Sistine Chapel is that it unites the state of the art uh, imaging and printing technology with bookmaking traditions of papermaking, uh, of printing and of binding, some of which are endangered. For instance, because the book, uh, the, the, the three volumes, the trilogy uh, is two feet, uh, two feet high, 24 inches high trim size, there's only one binder actually left in the world that can hand bind to that scale. Uh, outside of Milan, and we worked with that binder. So the book also represents uh, a preservation of bookmaking traditions, as well as introducing uh, brand new innovations. And we love that. At, at Callaway, we love um, combining uh, tradition and breaking tradition. Brilliant. Uh, Manuela, can I bring you in here? What was it like working with the Vatican. The Sistine Chapel is a very beautiful place, but I was also a very special place. I, I mu it must have been complicated. Well, I would say I would say the Vatican, the Vatican museums are possibly one of the most hermetic institutions in the world. Uh, partly because the collections of the Vatican museums are so extensive. Um, I don't know whether it's the largest museum in the world, but it must be one of the top ones. Um, it took us it took us a year um, to uh, be able to persuade the um, both both the archive and the directors of the Vatican museums to re-photograph the Sistine Chapel using. Um, the most up-to-date photographic technology possible. And the persuasive element was that um, through the photography, we have created a set of files, digital files, that are essential to their preservation and conservation efforts um, of the frescoes in the Sistine Chapel itself. And as, as you said, um, the Sistine Chapel is both, both um, a place of high art, but also the most sacred chapel in, in the Christian world. And it, it is visited, um, I think pre-COVID and post-COVID, by about 20,000 people a day. So it has, it is both a, a pilgrimage, it is both a spiritual journey, it is a very holy place, as well as being this magnificent uh, chamber, if you will, uh, built along very, very precise architectural um, principles that um, recall a spiritual ambience. And uh, Working with the Vatican museums once is, is a very, is a, I would say is perhaps the most privileged relationship I have had in my career because they have been the custodians of the Sistine Chapel for many, many centuries. And getting close to even the vision of the initial Pope who, who commissioned the, the frescoes, the 15th century frescoes on the walls, 
and Michelangelo for the ceiling and the Last Judgment. Uh, one understands the the I th I think uh, the most extraordinary vision of art and how it impacts the the spirit of the viewer. And in fact, one understands how walls, floor, and ceiling work together in an extraordinary way. In fact, the floors, um, um, the marble, the marble patterns on the floors were created in the 1500s. And we use some of the patterns in the book on the end papers um, because the designs are the most beautiful designs you could, you could imagine. And so it is a privilege and also we're very, very thrilled that we've been able to create something so significant. So conservationists will always be able to refer back to those colors that were captured digitally and in such detail because there, as Nicholas pointed out, there are 270,000 files. Right. So, so it's great, great detail. I can only imagine that the the nighttime operations to take the pictures must have been planned with military precision. They were they were because of course they they we could not undertake the photography during the day um, because of the twenty thousand uh, uh, daily visitors and so the scaffolding and the the uh, tracking system to take these two hundred seventy thousand frames had. Uh, had to build on top of a 33 foot high scaffold that went up every night, um, then came down by opening uh, the next morning and then went up again every night. So it, it was, but it was quite, quite efficient to accomplish that in 67 nights. And one aspect of it was that each night after that section had been scanned, um, they were they were composited into page proofs on digital uh, proofing machines, and then those proofs were taken back the next day, the next night, under color temperature balance conditions to be able to then color correct the proofs against the original frescoes. This is very unusual there are very few art books of any kind or size where one has the opportunity actually to color correct against the originals but we did this each night and we kept doing it until there was no no additional correction to be made so it is 99.4 percent accurate and one feels that in viewing the pages that the the uh, the the amazing palette of Michelangelo and his fellow Renaissance masters is so um, and thanks also to the restoration of the chapel that was done in the 1980s that got rid of centuries of uh, candle smoke and and pollution. So if that hadn't been done, it probably would not have been worthwhile to undertake this project. But the fact that it was 
uh, plus all of the technology and craftsmanship means that now the audience can can really experience something that is quite, uh, albeit on paper as opposed to in fresco, but from a textural standpoint and from a color standpoint, it it does give you a very accurate experience of what it would be like to be up there sitting on Michelangelo's shoulder like a bird. Uh, because basically the distance, the viewing distance in the book is is arm's length. You know, right. uh, which and he is, had to so use a scaffold as well. Oh, absolutely. And he was hoisted up. And remember, of course, there was no electricity, <laughs> no, uh, no ability to balance colors, ever shifting light. So, you know, his accomplishment was was superhuman. And, and he was miserable. Uh, he wrote many letters talking about how, how awful the experience was. And so he suffered for his art, but we are the beneficiaries forever. Thank, well, we thanks. All, we all suffer for our art. Um, <laughs> the color matching. So you printed out proofs, took them back the next day. And then, so how does that happen? Surely someone doesn't just climb to the top of the scaffold with the proof and look mm -hmm. at it against the blue sky is that the right blue sky well the lighting the, well the the lighting of course is a, an enormous part of doing photography of this uh precision and accuracy the lighting design and the lights themselves so everything was done under uh color temperature balanced conditions color temperature balanced conditions so you're yes. so literally the, the, the controlling lighting, the light in the room. Oh, absolutely. 100%. No, nothing is done by natural light. Right. And that's one reason why it had to be done at night as well. I see. Okay. Well, I can't imagine. <laughs> I can't imagine that process <laughs> well, uh, all coming together. To further, to, to further um, uh, complicate it, of course, the 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 ceiling the the walls are flat but the ceiling are are vaults are, uh, are, are are vaulted and so the the uh, the way that light falls across a curved surface is m much different than a flat surface so we had to compensate not only in terms of the uh, optically but in terms of the lighting for the uh, for the curves and the different orientations uh, so that it would all be consistent and it is um, uh, in, in the volumes. Okay. But, um, but um, just one, one other thought, uh, because you asked, you know, how do we come up with this idea? Well, what we wanted to do, we realized that using technology and craftsmanship, that we could in book form create something that would actually be an art experience in and of itself, um, uh, and that and that the art that the book would be an art object, um, and so that is part of. Um, you know, I've always believed I'm a lifelong lover and collector of books before I became a publisher. And I, I believe very strongly in the iconographic and totemic power of books. 
Um, and it's one reason why you want to hold them, whether it's a, a visual book or a written book that you want to hold and contain the 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 art uh, and the story um, in in its pages. So so we wanted the this book to have that kind of power that emanates from um, the, the the hand and the vision of, of great artists. So it, this was our first entry into the book as art object luxury market. And we have now seen that there is an audience for this uh, kind of uh book for this kind of art experience it complements it does not it does not um it does not duplicate the experience of being in front of an original work of art but um also in today's world with the increasing complexity and difficulty of moving masterworks and their you know their their irreplaceability um, their evanescence and the risks mm. that books of this kind can occupy a new place in the art experience yeah. so we're applying this technology and this craftsmanship um, and scale to um, different artists um, uh, ancient modern and contemporary and we are very gratified in part um in part thanks to eight books eight books is is uh, is uh pioneering um a an audience uh for this uh uh and we're very we're very pleased about that and gratified but it's the audience is global it is uh it is varied from royal collections to uh, to to individuals who are putting together their life savings because they are they they, they must have it for their life. It's something that will inspire them their their whole lives, and uh, it's all over the world. Um, and of course, um, a books that has that kind of reach, both to the collector and to the uh the bookseller um so it's a wonderful it's a wonderful partnership and we see this as a as a demonstration of the uh, persistence and and um amazing vitality of books as a medium well a rare book doesn't necessarily have to be an old book it can be exactly brand new exactly it, there's various definitions of that um Okay, uh, Manuela, let, let's bring you in again here. Um, so it's a big book and it's a spectacular book. How do people react when they see it for the first time? Well, we've we've had we've had very emotional reactions, and we've had we've had extraordinary comments because what one sees is the art. Um, at such scale and then one thinks how could this possibly have been accomplished centuries ago and michelangelo um, painted at one-to-one -one ratio um, except for some details the famous very famous uh, 
um, image of God touching, connecting with Adam's finger. That's painted at two to one ratio. And it is astonishing to think how he could have mapped and, and um, arranged these figures over a curved vaulted ceiling, maintaining the scale and maintaining the dynamism of the figures, of the elements, the clouds, the angels, the, the, the light, uh, the divine figures, the and and when it comes when it comes to the last judgment, the expressions on on the people either ascending to heaven or being brought down to to hell by demons. It is absolutely unbelievable what you see. And so as one, as people turn the pages, they are transported on this on this incredible journey from the frescoes of the 15th century that adorn the walls. These are Old Testament scenes that uh, we sort of remember from, from catechism lessons when we were five and six, but to see the color schemes and to, to realize that there were 10, 10 painters, 10 artists all working together at the same time, um, creating these Old Testament scenes that actually echo in terms of color, in terms of narrative, in terms of meaning across the walls. And then and then the great masterpieces of, of apparently, apparently when he did the ceiling after the um, the wall frescoes were painted by his his uh, contemporaries, uh, he um, he he tried to hire some assistants to work with him on the on the ceiling, but no one was good enough. So he said, "I get out of here. I got to do it all myself." And so, also the technique, the fresco technique is 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 such that the artist has to paint very very fast because the fresco dries in four or five hours, depending on the time of year. But um, he he painted he painted these cartoons, these these maps, and then brought them up. And I think at some point, you see that it's just freestyle. And it looks astonishingly modern. Some of the figures look as if they could have been painted this century, not centuries and ago. And the, the, the brushstroke work, which you can only see in the books, because you can't see it from 60 feet below, um it's it's uh it's like post-war action painting it's so gestural and it's so dynamic and it's so fast so these are they're one of the wonders of this is that you are continually discovering things that you cannot see uh in in person because of the distance from uh, floor uh, from right. standing uh, up to the ceiling itself. Does anyone comment about, say, an imperfection? That's an old building. There are cracks. Oh, yes. And they're visible in your well, photography. Some... Yes. So some people have said, you know, this was never meant to be seen the, uh, 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 so up close uh, and personal. And but of course you can you can step back <laughs> when you're viewing the book. <laughs> I think Richard, one of the one of the 
to me wonderful aspects of this is the nudity in the figures, which of course <laughs> shocked to be initially when when the Sistine Chapel was unveiled, because there are all these naked bodies. And um, what one finds is, you know, subsequent popes said, no, 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 this figure has to be covered up. So there's there's this new painting on top of um, naked bodies that adds um, some some clothing. But after Michelangelo was gone, I think it, it, uh... He is known to history as uh, the master of the pants. <laughs> he was assigned to <laughs> to uh, to cover up the naughty bits. Um, and I think that I personally think uh, that um, uh, that um, that the that's part of part of probably what kept Michelangelo's interest was being able to, uh, you know, when he did the studies to to uh, draw and then paint all those naked bodies. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. All right. So I think we should probably be fair here and mention the price of the book. Uh, the three volume set <clears throat> in its box is $22,000. It is limited to 600 sets for the world in English language. And um, the target audience is, is quite fascinating. Um, there are There is the expected audience of art collectors, of bibliophiles, of book, uh, book collectors. Um, but uh, there, also is a very important institutional market because of course this is this is a work for the ages and uh we want it to be seen uh for generations to come by the widest audience so we have many individuals who have bought sets for their personal collections but then also buy additional set or multiple sets to donate to an institution, whether that be an art museum, a university library, a public library, a, um, a, uh, a seminary, their church. Um, so the, the, um, the philanthropic aspect of this is also something that we, that we welcome and, of course, enables sets to be placed uh, in institutions where where it is preserved and can be seen by everyone. Right. So potentially on display for more people to see it. A number of the museums and libraries that have acquired them actually are dedicating exhibitions and rooms to them, either temporary or permanently. Uh, in in their, for, you know, most libraries have a rare book room. We've also designed a a uh, a very contemporary, uh, transparent uh, plexiglass stand that has a very compact footprint that enables one to first of all see the volumes at an ideal viewing angle uh, and in a compact space. Um, so that that stand is bespoke, and that's available for fifteen uh, hundred dollars. Um, so um, anyway, so so um, we 
but the the variety and range uh, of of uh, acquirers is it continues to surprise us. Um, one of the very first sets we sold was uh, I, I met some friends that I hadn't seen in a long time, and he uh, he is a designer, and uh, she is a young adult author, and asked me what I was working on, and I mentioned it. This was several years before it was finished, and within about thirty seconds, they said, do you have any sets available? <laughs> are, are there any more sets available? <laughs> and I said, yeah, there's a few. And they said, we'll take it. Wow. Um, you know, sight unseen. And they waited for three years, very patiently. But they designed a room in their house. And these are, these are uh, individuals of modest means. Um, and he actually built because he's a cabinet maker and he built his own bespoke cabinet to hold it. Um, there are municipal libraries, many museums in the, uh, and universities in the United States and internationally. People who have visited from all over the world who have visited the Sistine Chapel and want this as a kind of ultimate, uh, literally, souvenir. Indeed. Well, it's, it's to an remember epic it. souvenir. Indeed. An epic souvenir. That maybe that's how we should describe it to the audience. Yeah, it's definitely an epic book. Um, so you touched on the technology, uh, the changing technology uh, earlier. So a big, broad question here, but where are luxury books heading now? Well, the wonderful thing about bookmaking is its extraordinary range of expression, of surface, of of color of texture, et cetera. Um, so what we try to do is to translate the, the, all of the physical qualities of an artwork literally on the printed page um, to, to try to convey both color, texture, surface, et cetera. Uh, anything is pop almost anything is possible now. E even three-dimensional printing um, of course, there are now ability to replicate canvases. I, I'm not a big fan of that because I, I believe that books don't need to try to copy it. It's always an interpretation of the artwork, but using all the tools we have, we can, we, we can make it what, what my goal has always been what I describe as making the art sing on the printed page. That's what that's what we tried to do at Calloway. So, colors that are true, one hundred percent. Colors that are that are true, whatever those colors are. I mean, the colors in 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 um, in the Sistine Chapel are are extremely modern. They're out. They're outrageous. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so anyway, but you say where is the luxury book headed? Well, I think it's uh, it's uh, it's it's flowering um, because of of what we can do, and because of because it provides such a wonderful way in this world to preserve and communicate art very eloquently. So we're working on a number of uh, of volumes they will be very surprising that the opposite end of the arch spectrum with both 
modern and contemporary artists, but um, we think that the the market for it is is growing. The product is improving, uh, but of course it requires great dedication. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed, it's a big undertaking to create a book like this. Um, all right, one last question to both of you, which we ask to all our guests. Uh, what book or books are you currently reading? Uh, do you want to go first, Nicholas? Uh, I'm reading three books that are in print right now. Uh, Hugh Aiken's uh, book, Picasso's War, How Modern Art Came to America. Uh, in nonfiction, Fiction, Touch by Olaf Olafsson, and um, Paris, A Love Story by Kati Martin. Uh, and in out-of-print books, um, The Banquet Years by Roger Shattuck, which is about the origins of the avant-garde from 1885 to 1914. It's almost the, the predecessor to Picasso's war. Um, so... Manuela? <laughs> I think Nicholas is reading far more than I am. I, I love Peter Watson uh, as an author, and I'm, I'm reading his latest history of thought and invention from fire to Freud. I'd like to like great journeys through books. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, all right. Wonderful. Uh, that's all we have time for. Uh, thank you to Nicholas Calloway and Manuela Roosevelt from Calloway Arts and Entertainment for joining us today. Thank you. Richard. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. It was a pleasure talking to you. Uh, you can find copies of Calloway's Sistine Chapel uh, by visiting the Rare Book page on Abe Books. Uh, my name is Richard Davis and you've been listening to an Abe Books podcast. And we'll see you all again soon.